Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician Dr. Robert Jackson, his wife Carlotta, and their daughter Hannah Miller, this program will help you understand that human beings are more than just physiology, that for people there's more than just diagnosis and treatment, and that in life there's more than just medicine for a cure. This is More Than Medicine, and the doctor is in. Welcome back to More Than Medicine. My name is Hannah Miller. I'm here with my dad, (laughs) Dr. Robert Jackson. And if you missed last week's episode, make sure that you go back and listen, because this week is part two of a discussion regarding vaccines. And last week, we discussed the history of vaccines. We kind of defined some terms such as herd mentality and herd immunity immunity mentality, Uh, herd immunity and uh, what that means. And we started diving into a discussion on about the concerns that people have. And we're responding to those as, or dad, really, because I'm just sitting here asking the questions. Dad is addressing the the concerns that people have regarding uh, immunizations that he hears the most often. And, and he's coming at it from the perspective of both a medical doctor, but one who understands the legitimate concerns that people have regarding immunizations and the risk factors and etc. And then we're going to wrap up this whole discussion on how to essentially have this discussion as a believer, how to respond to, because really there's, this discussion has turned into one side versus another. And we really want to welcome you into a conversation of grace and uh, say, let's, let's talk about this without getting heated. And let's look at the facts and let's address the legitimate concerns that people have. And in the end of all of this, view it through a biblical lens. And so that's where we're going to, that's the direction that we're headed today. And so we're diving into, we're picking up from last week where we dropped off, which is the additional concerns that people have. Uh, and so there's just a long list here. And uh, so what's the next one uh, that we have on our list that we're going through, Dad? All right. Well, thank you, Ms. Hannah, and I thank our listening audience for uh, tuning in again this week. Uh, The second concern that I would like to address is that some people assert that the diseases that the vaccines target have essentially disappeared. There's no longer a reason to vaccinate against diseases that no longer occur in the United States. For example, the CDC reported 57 cases of diphtheria and nine deaths between 1980 and 2016 in the United States. There have only been 32 deaths from mumps and 42 deaths from rubella since 1979. Polio has been determined to be eradicated from the U.S. since 1979. So why would we still vaccinate against these diseases that are essentially eliminated? My response to this is that these diseases have only been suppressed. They're not eradicated. They are suppressed. If we do not maintain a herd immunity of 92%, which was the magical threshold that we discussed last week, 92% or greater, these diseases will reoccur, as we saw in Japan and in Southern California. And as we discussed last week, the 
Hispanic community in Southern California that was not immunized experienced a measles outbreak in which there were 16,000 cases of measles, 4,000 hospitalizations, and 75 deaths. And if we do not keep up the herd immunity with vaccinations against these supposedly eradicated diseases, we will see reoccurrences of those diseases and we will see not only sickness but death from diseases that we think have been eradicated but in reality are only suppressed. What about the concern, and I, and I hear this a lot, and this is a question that I have, that most of most diseases that vaccines target are relatively harmless and in, in, in many cases, and it makes vaccines unnecessary. I think I hear that one a lot. Is, is it measles? Like it doesn't really, well, um, and, and chicken pox? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. For example, I remember people talking about having uh, measles parties. This was, of course, before mm-hmm. my time. And people would get all their kids together and they'd all get the measles and get it over with. And that way they could get back to school. But I recently saw somebody ask if anybody on online wanted to have a chicken pox party. Yeah, chicken pox party. Now, chicken pox is different from the measles. Mm -hmm. But, you know, way back when, measles was a much more serious illness. And, you know, lots of lots of pregnant women feared measles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if they're if they got German measles while pregnant, the risk of congenital deformities was dramatic. Mm-hmm. And so that that was a very serious illness. Now, the other measles, rubiola as we call it, um, was, was, was a very benign illness. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the German measles mm-hmm. that could cause congenital malformations and deaths. And so the MMR protects against both types of well, it, it protects against the German measles, okay? Measles, mumps, rumella. It t- protects against both measles and mumps. But it's the German measles that we're most concerned about there. And so, you know, I, I think it's a serious concern. But I would say to those people, they need to go back and read the, the diaries and the testimonials of people who lived in the early 1900s who lived in the fear of their children contracting diphtheria and dying an early death. Uh, in fact, I was talking to a gentleman at, at lunch last Sunday who lived in my hometown in the time when my dad was small. And he told me that one of my aunts had a sister who contracted diphtheria and died young as a two-year-old. Who, who hears that story today? Nobody hears that today. But that was the reality in the early 1900s, that children died from diphtheria and from whooping cough. And if you read the, the diaries of people who lived back then, the mothers lived in terror that their children would get whooping cough or diphtheria or measles, and that they would die young from those infectious diseases, where entire neighborhoods of children would die from those diseases at a time when there was no adequate treatment. In the years immediately prior to the widespread availability of immunizations for these individual diseases, there were 400 deaths on average per year due to measles in the United States. There were 1,800 deaths annually due to diphtheria, and get this, 
4,000 deaths annually due to whooping cough in the United States. This was after better public health and sanitation measures had been implemented and had already reduced these infectious diseases dramatically. So the contention that these diseases are relatively harmless is specious, especially when it's your child that contracts those diseases. So who is not getting immunized? When we talk about um, herd immunity <laughs> and we talk about having to have that 92% threshold, who, who doesn't fall within that? Uh, the first group is illegal immigrants. Lots of folks who come to the United States illegally are partially immunized or completely unimmunized. And that poses a threat to the herd immunity that we've talked about. Tourists who fly to America are sometimes unimmunized or partially immunized, and sometimes they bring with them infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. Case in point is the coronavirus that we're dealing yeah. with right now. There are people who are flying to the United States as tourists, and sometimes they bring with them the coronavirus. Number three, and of course there's no immunization against coronavirus right now, so that's not a really good example, but it is an example of infectious disease that comes with tourists. Three are religious objectors. There are subsets of our population that because of their religion object to immunizations for one reason or another. For example, there's a Jewish community in New York City that objects to immunizations, and there's been a lot in the press about that. Um, and it, for example, some of them got measles recently and there's been uh, legislation proposed to compel them to be immunized against their religious objections, which uh, there's been a lot of brouhaha about their First Amendment rights being violated. Mm -hmm. And so then there's the public health concern posed by them not being immunized, getting the measles. But the herd immunity in New York is so high that nobody else is going to get the measles. Only the Jewish people in that subset are going to get the measles. So I don't think that it's fair to subjugate their First Amendment rights because the herd immunity is so good. Well, and you and I know enough about politics to know that once they get a toehold in being able to force you uh, to do something like this, like an immunization, it's just the beginning. That's right. All right, number four is those who don't believe the government should be allowed to tell them what to do with their physical bodies. Number five, it's the immunocompromised, such as cancer patients who are on chemotherapy or debilitated elderly patients who cannot physically withstand an immunization. What are the consequences of these groups not being immunized? Well, probably not a lot because there are not enough of them to decrease the entire herd immunity. A decrease in the herd immunity, which could lower the immunization rate below the 92% threshold, could cause small outbreaks of some of these diseases. This would then put everyone else at risk of infectious disease outbreaks. But in reality, I don't think that there are sufficient numbers of these different subgroups that would decrease the herd immunity at large below that threshold. Now, suppose there was a huge migration of illegal immigrants in the across the southern border for whatever reason, then that would be a problem because then you would have 
a large illegal immigrant subgroup bringing in infectious diseases and they would not be immunized. You'd have to take drastic public health measures to immunize that illegal immigrant subgroup. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that would be a problem. There are lots and lots of older people in our demographics now. A lot of them are elderly, debilitated, on chemotherapy for chronic diseases, and a lot of them are susceptible to disease, but they've been immunized in their younger years against a lot of these illnesses. So they're not that susceptible. That was going to be my next question is, is this a serious concern? And you, But you kind of answered that a bit with talking about the illegal immigrant subgroups um, and, and how that their majority is pretty small. I mean, that they yeah. are, for the most part, a pretty small subgroups. Yeah, and, and I really think that only in that unimmunized Hispanic subgroup is it really a concern. And mm -hmm. I think public health officials are aggressive about trying to get those subgroups immunize so that they aren't a threat to themselves. I don't think they're a threat to the larger community because the herd immunity is good in the larger population. Mm -hmm. But those subgroups are at risk themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that that um, when, you know, the last, I think it was at the end of the, the last episode, we, when we were talking about vaccines last week, we talked about the fear mongering that goes on. It's something that people use to fear monger one another into getting yeah. vaccines when they have just a, they have concerns or they need to, they want to do more research. And I don't think that that's fair because I think, as you just said, you know, for the most part, that 92, the, the, the subgroups, it stays within the subgroups That's right. That's and right. not to use this idea that it's going to become widespread outside of the subgroups yeah. as a, a weapon, you know, as a club to bludgeon somebody into getting vaccines when they have <laughs> a personal concern that needs to, that they want answers to. That's right. So what's, uh, what's the greatest con concern of parents regarding immunizations? All right. Well, the elephant in the room is always autism. It's always autism from the MMR vaccine, and we need to talk about that. Now, if you listen to the CDC, they emphatically say that there's no risk of autism from MMR. And I'm going to say up front, I don't, I don't agree with that. If you listen to the whistleblower, Dr. William Thompson, who is a senior vaccine safety research scientist at the CDC, he says that the CDC has been hiding autism vaccine links from the public for the last 10 to 14 years. And there's a lot of information in the media about that. We're not going to dive into that because it's a very long story and people can look that up on the internet. That's um, Dr. William Thompson. Dr. Again, William Thompson. You can look him up on the internet. Just look up whistleblower, Dr. William Thompson. There's a lot of information about that. And, and basically, that causes people to distrust the CDC, and I don't blame them. I don't blame them a bit. Um, so there's a whole question about it. Now, I would hasten to add that Dr. Thompson is not an anti-vaccine person. He's a vaccine researcher, and he is in favor of vaccines. But his contention is that there is a connection between the MMR vaccine and a small subgroup of patients that were in some of their research and that he believes that the CDC has been covering up some of that connection, some of that link between the MMR vaccine and autism. 
Now, regardless, regardless of all that, the link and the connection is exceedingly small. Mm -hmm. The link, I believe, is there, but it's exceedingly small. Now, what is my recommendation? I know everybody asks me that, and I, I want to give my opinion on it. And I would refer people to a discussion that's on the Internet by Dr. Paul Thomas. He's a pediatrician from Portland, Oregon, and he has an interview that's on the Internet on Highwire high wire interview and it's a discussion about his book it's entitled the vaccine friendly plan mm -hmm. and i find it a fascinating interview and i would encourage our listeners to go and listen to dr paul thompson's interview uh, on high wire and uh, i think it's a, a a very knowledgeable and logical and unemotional an informative interview by a pediatrician who is not an anti-vaccine pediatrician. In his medical clinic, they give lots and lots of vaccines, but his clinic is unique because he takes all comers. Everybody out there knows that there are doctors that if you do not follow the CDC plan for vaccines... They don't want you as a patient. They but... will not take you as a patient. Dr. Thompson is not that way. Uh, he'll take you in as a patient if you're against vaccines he accepts you gladly and he will take care of you and your family you and your children and what has happened is he has has three subgroups of patients those that are completely unvaccinated those that follow his vaccine friendly plan that I'll describe in a minute and then those that follow the CDC plan and um, he has some fairly remarkable results that have come out of his vaccine-friendly plan and some statistics that's come out of his medical practice. First, I would like to say that uh, he doesn't segregate people into these groups. They self-segregate themselves into these three groups. They, they come into his practice. They say, I, I don't want vaccines. So they kind of put themselves into the unvaccinated group. Or they come in and they say, We're, we don't really like the idea of getting all these immunizations at one time. And he, they choose to follow his vaccine-friendly plan, which stretches, stretches out the vaccines over a longer period of time. That's basically mm -hmm. all it does. And then there's others that don't care one way or the other, and they just follow the CDC plan. Um, he recommends to all of his patients that they eat real food, not processed food, that they avoid all toxins, which, which is what any good mm -hmm. doctor would do and that they slow down the vaccine administration schedule. His contention is that excessive vaccines overstimulate the immune system. And that what this does is that it triggers the neurodevelopmental problems that we're seeing in some children. And that it trips the immune system into autoimmunity. And that's why we're seeing some of the cases of autism that we're seeing in the United States today. For example, Miss Hannah, when I was in medical school, we never talked about autism. Took no classes in autism. Didn't study it. Because autism was exceedingly rare back in the early 70s and early 80s when I was in medical school. But now everybody talks about autism and every doctor is seeing more and more cases of autism. Why in the world is that? Well, I remember, I mean, I'm 30, and I remember 
thinking, I guess it was about when I was in high school, when I first started hearing people talk about autism and using that term and thinking, what, what is that? What is it? Cause I mean, even just 10, 15, 15 years ago, it was when it kind of really began to gain steam and people started talking about it. And so I, you know, I've been, began questioning myself, is this because doctors are just becoming better at diagnosing autism? Have I been missing autism all these years? Or is, or is autism just suddenly appearing on the scene? And why is it suddenly appearing on the scene that, that there are patients with autism now that weren't there in the 70s and 80s? Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Paul's contention is that it's because we're giving so many vaccines simultaneously. Because you see, when I was in medical school, we only gave a, a DTAP, an IPV, and, and an MMR. Mm-hmm. We just didn't give a flood of vaccines like we give nowadays. And so what's happening is because we give so many vaccines at one time, his contention is that we're overstimulating the immune system of children, and it's triggering in some children. And admittedly, it's, it's still rare, but it is stimulating in some children their neurocognitive delays. And it may be triggering autism. Now, I want to say there are a lot of causes of autism. Right. We, don't, we don't really know what all causes autism. And that's difficult and because there's a spectrum for autism. It is. There's and a so spectrum it from mild even more to severe. Mm-hmm. And could, is it all just vaccines? I don't think so. I think there are a lot of causes of autism. But there's no doubt that there are a lot of parents out there who will tell you that their child's neurocognitive issues started the very day that they got an MMR vaccine. Hmm. And there's no doubt in their mind that that child's issue began with the same day they got a a vaccine, mostly MMR. And so there's a lot of questions out there. Now, let me tell you what was Mr. Dr. Paul's experience in his medical practice. He He invited a health informatics expert to come into his medical practice and evaluate all of his patients. He had in his practice 715 families who did not vaccinate at all, no vaccines whatsoever. And interestingly, these were a high-risk group of patients. Many of them did not vaccinate because they had somebody in the family who had autism or mental retardation or seizures, Mm -hmm. or for some other reason, they chose not to vaccinate. So they were a high-risk group of patients. In that group of 715 patients that were unvaccinated, they only had one case of autism. He also had a group of patients that were 2,645 that were partially vaccinated. They followed his vaccine-friendly plan. They slowed down the vaccine schedule and stretched it over a longer period of time. And in that group of patients, they only had six cases of autism, which extrapolated out represented a ratio of one in 440. Wow. So for the unvaccinated, it was one in 715. For the slow schedule, the partially vaccinated, it was one in 440. That's compared to the CDC's own 
ratio of 1 in 45, 1 out of 45, experience some kind of neurocognitive delay or neurocognitive issue related to vaccines. Now, that's a dramatic difference. Yeah. So when you look at that, you say, why in the world would you not just slow down the administration of the vaccines? Why even take the risk? Mm -hmm. Now, there is a bugaboo with all of this, and that is that if you slow down the schedule, you're going to have a problem getting your children in daycare. Yeah. You're going to have a problem getting them in the first grade. Now, his, his schedule allows you to get all your vaccines before first grade, but it will not allow you to get all your vaccines before daycare if you okay. put your child in yeah. daycare at a very, very early age. Mm -hmm. So all I can say to moms and dads out there is that I would encourage you to go to the Internet, look at Dr. Paul's uh, vaccine-friendly plan. You need to think about it. You need to pray about it. I just think it's a wise choice. I've always been uncomfortable with giving all the vaccines at one time. It's mm. just been problematic for me. Now, let me conclude with some recommendations. There's some things that I think we all need to think about as Christian folks. Number one, we need to avoid the inflammatory rhetoric that I see evidenced on both sides of the debate. There are a lot of folks out there that are, that are pro-CDC schedule, that are family doctors and pediatricians and and they they're just hardliners yeah they're very dismissive as well they are they're proud very arrogant very know-it-all and then there are anti-vaxxers that throw firebrands at the doctors and the mm -hmm. cdc officials and i think it's non-productive and i think everybody needs to avoid the inflammatory rhetoric that i hear on both sides of the debate Number two, I think people should always be respectful of other people's sincerely held convictions and the positions that they come to, even if you disagree with them. Number three, we need to extend grace and forgiveness, especially those who believe that their family member has been harmed by a vaccine. In the book of Hebrews, the scripture says, see to it that you do not fall short of the grace of God. Do not allow a root of bitterness to spring up among you by which many have been defiled. And Miss Hannah, I promise you, I have seen many patients over the years who are convinced that their child or their nephew or somebody has been harmed by a vaccine and they are embittered and unforgiving and angry towards the medical profession at large and an individual physician in particular. And that's just, it's, it's not Christian. God has called us to be forgiving. And number four, those of you who are Christian people are in a perfect position to be ministers of grace, helping those, those who are embittered by vaccine injury to overcome anger and unforgiveness by the grace of God. We're all called to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all called to help people to come to grips with the issues of life, especially unforgiveness and bitterness. And to those on the other side to get past their own pride and arrogance and be willing to be understanding yeah. um, to those who have questions and concerns. 
Dad, thanks so much for a great conversation on vaccines. I think this whole conversation, these two-part episodes have been very enlightening. Again, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go get last week's uh, episode or podcast. You can find that in the iTunes store uh, under More Than Medicine with Dr. Robert Jackson. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for listening to today's edition of More Than Medicine. You can follow Jackson Family Ministry on Facebook, Instagram, and on their website. Be sure to contact them via jacksonfamilyministry at gmail.com for speaking engagements and for book information. Join us next time for More Than Medicine.